0: Hello, and welcome to The Framing Effect. I'm your host, Jerry Zhang. This show seeks to view the incredible implications of behavioral economics and business through undiscovered lenses. The Framing Effect in the context of behavioral economics is a term describing the fluidity of information. By framing the how, when, and where information is communicated, we will see how seemingly unrelated events and people are all connected by the overarching forces of different industries. Join me in conversations with experts in fields not traditionally business-affiliated to find out how the decisions of individuals can affect the world. On today's episode, we have special guest Dr. Edward Marshall, adjunct professor of leadership and management in Duke University's Fuqua School of Business and the Pratt School of Engineering. He is also the author of Leadership's Fourth Evolution, Collaboration for the 21st Century. Links to purchase Leadership's Fourth Evolution in both digital and physical copies can be found in the description to this episode. Hello, Dr. Marshall. How are you doing
1: today? I'm doing great. Nice to see you, Gianni.
2: It's wonderful to hear. And the main focus of today's discussion will revolve around your recent book, Leadership's Fourth Evolution. Now, leadership is like a a very commonly discussed topic, and it's relevant in every field in the world. And it's certainly uh, extremely well discussed throughout, like young people. Right, young know, people want to get into leadership; they want leadership positions, and you know it's generally a good thing to be knowledgeable about. However, it's pretty rare that uh, people discuss like the modern changes and like the uh, new technological leadership developments. And that's why I think your book is extremely insightful because it not only talks about the modern applications of leadership, but it also discusses it in like the frame to economics and also regarding the millennial workforce. So I think we'll just start with the first question. Uh, Could you please define what exactly is a a collaborative leader?
1: Sure. Just if I could, just before we get into that, um the, the full title of the book is Leadership's Fourth Evolution, uh, Collaboration for the Twenty First Century, right. which I think is um apropos to the, the topic that you're raising, uh Jianyi. And also, if anyone in uh, your audience is interested in it, it may be found at Cognella Academic Publishing
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, in both um print and um ebook. Uh, formats so, um, so I think if in terms of looking at you know what collaborative leadership is, I mean I've, I've got a whole two chapters chapters on the topic, um, but you know I'd like to think about it in terms of you know what do people want in the workplace, particularly the millennial and Gen Z generations, and the next ones after that. Um, now, I'm obviously older, uh, but I've spent a lot of time, you know, uh, 35, 38 years in the business world and about a decade in the academic world. And um, what I've learned from <clears> that the, 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 my students at Duke actually taught me the critical importance of um Uh, of of developing this new approach to leadership, which I'd been working on for a really long time. In fact, it was my students who inspired me to write the book because it became a textbook for my course on management and high-tech industries. So um, for engineering students in particular, this was was very, very relevant uh, because engineers almost by inclination and by requirement have a need to be able to work together more effectively, but we're my students are being and most people in the workplace are being plopped right into organizations that are very command and control very power oriented. So a way of thinking about collaborative leadership is in the context of what I call different paradigms and therefore different paradigms. So the first one is early 19th century up to the present day which is what I call the power paradigm and that's where you know as as it, as it speaks you know it's it's hierarchy it's command and control it's it's all about um uh it's all about control and climbing up a ladder around 1960 the second uh paradigm uh, of evolution came to pass which was Uh, with the work of Douglas McGregor uh, called The Human Side of Enterprise, and I call that the people paradigm, where people are really put at the center of what leadership should be focusing on. Surprise, surprise, you you would think that leadership would understand that. Um, Around the year 1990, uh, Stephen Covey really brought into play what I call the principle-centered approach to leadership of the principal paradigm. And around that time, um, cause I kind of cut my teeth on both uh, both uh, um, uh, McGregor and Covey, and as well as many others in my own education and training, um, I began my work seriously in corporate America in, um, in, in, in developing this new methodology. Something that was going to be fit for the 21st century uh, and something that would really meet uh, the workforce where they were. So what I, what I learned from talking with people, working with teams, senior leadership, doing my own reading, is that people want uh, to be acknowledged for who they are, for what gifts they bring to the workplace, for their contributions. Um, People want to come to work feeling good about the place that they worked for. Um, They want to be proud of of what they're doing and who they're working with. Um, And so what kind of leadership philosophy, if you will, or paradigm actually meets that? Well, uh, certainly not the power paradigm, which is where most people are today. Um, and, and I'll get to that in just a second, but um, the, the people and principle-centered paradigms actually went a lot further along the road of recognizing the importance of people and recognizing the importance of principle in, in, in running an organization. But the, um, they still functioned within a top-down hierarchical kind of uh, organizational structure. So it was what I call more benevolent power. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so in collaboration, I, the cr- critical distinction is principle-based. It's certainly people-centric, but it shifts the whole way of working from power or people or, you know, the cult of personality uh, to, um, to principle. And so that means that the leadership framework, collaborative leadership, is a principle-based approach to leadership. And, you know, we can get into that more, but if you're looking for a specific definition, uh, in my book I've defined it as an ethical principle-based philosophy of service It is about serving others that builds a culture of psychological safety, ownership, and trust all of which empower the workforce. And I, in all of my work uh, consulting with some of the nation's and world's best corporations, I've never met an employee who didn't want to be empowered. So how does that match up with where um, this generation is? Um, Deloitte has done some excellent research on uh, what the millennial generation and Gen Z generation want in terms of the the workplace and in terms of their lives and having three Millennials of my own um, and in talking with them they want all the things I talked about before and are incredibly frustrated that they are in these organizations that are top-down micromanaging you know uh, HR driven results oriented only Kinds of organizations, and it, it it sets up a very very difficult um, environment for them in which to work. Yeah. So we could we could go on, but it, you know, let me let me turn it back to you to see what where you really would like to take this conversation. Um,
2: I mean, I think that's what you said about the employees wanting more empowerment. That's certainly a fundamental aspect of almost like human nature. People mm-hmm. want to do something fulfilling. They want to feel like they're contributing. Yes. In some ways, um, I'm, I totally get that. And also, well, the most like successful companies in the world, maybe such as Amazon, uh, Microsoft, Apple, Google, they're all quite top down, right? They have like central leadership, uh, very like power controlled in, in the centralized and the workers down below probably have very little say in the actual and, and direction of the company right. yet they make trillions of dollars and bring in massive revenue but certainly it might not be as ethical as collaborative uh, the collaborative method um do you think there's like a balance between like maximizing company success and uh like raising ethics within the company culture
1: you know um i have learned that the way in which you in the companies that engage the workforce that give them a sense of ownership and safety where people trust each other are going to be far more productive um, in terms of the capacity of their workforces i have spent you know, as I said, around 40 years measuring this, every time I go into a client, every time I would speak in front of a group, I would ask them, what percentage of you are you giving your workplace today? Um, And the average, uh, this is about a half a million people over a long period of time, all over the world, different kinds of companies, different sizes of companies, the average is 30 to 40%. I call that productive energy. Productive energy is really a way of measuring it. You know, on Monday morning, when you look yourself in the mirror, what are you saying about your work? Are you saying, thank God it's Monday? You know, I can't wait to get to work. I'm so excited, but, you know, I can't wait to see my teammates, et cetera. Or are you saying, well, you know, I'll do my eight and hit the gate you know, what you've called in one of your uh, observations in our emails called quiet quitting, Mm -hmm. you know, people are going to do their minimal in organizations which are compliance oriented, aka hierarchy, and they're going to do their optimal in organizations which are more collaborative. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, you can, you know, there's an old, cartoon that is in HR circles, you know, that the the floggings will stop when productivity increases. Um, Amazon has a union now at a distribution center in New York because of the way in which they've treated their workers. They almost got a second one down in Alabama. Uh, workers are organizing all kinds of Starbucks. I think they're up to around 50 right now for the same reason. Um, uh, and so you will see people, um, uh, behave right now the same way that they did back in the twenties and thirties in reaction to this very strict, you know, policy that, that leaders had where they put profits over people, um, and where, um they didn't care you know people were interchangeable parts I mean you go into a Amazon warehouse I mean the people are just like robots I mean they spy on them they won't even let them go to the bathroom they're only paid 15 bucks an hour when it takes 25 to 30 dollars just to live um and etc etc so I think when you treat people subhumanely they're going to respond and organize and uh, seek to redress their grievances. When you give people the optimum, when you think of uh, Ben and Jerry's ice cream, or you think of Giovanni, or you think of uh, some of these other companies where they've given the workforce a greater degree of latitude. I mean, I worked for one company where um, I helped them. um, They had a thousand employees. They're a high-tech company um and uh they had two levels of organization they had two senior managers and everybody else was an associate and they did it as an experiment for a year and after a year the workforce was asked do you want to go back to all of the levels you know the six or seven levels or not and they said no we want to stay right where we are when i worked at dupont um In the IT organization down on the Gulf Coast of Texas, they had seven levels of organization and 250 people. Uh, We stripped out all the two layers, put them into collaborative teams. Their customer satisfaction ratings doubled inside of six months. Um, So, you know, it's, it's, I hate to make the comparison, but it is relevant that, you know, it's the difference between how Russia's conducting their war and how the Ukrainians are doing it. The Ukrainians are much more agile, they're much flatter, they have much more decision-making authority at the local level, and, um, and, and so they're winning at this point. And so the, uh, the same thing happens in business. Uh, the greater autonomy uh, and flexibility and agility you give people on the front line and decision-making authority, Um, the more effective you're going to meet the needs of the customers. In a global organization, you can't afford to have people going up the chain and down the chain, uh, even up a, a couple levels. They've got to be able to make the decisions on the spot, which means that leadership's job is to engage, involve, be clear about roles and responsibilities and boundaries and expectations all of those things that leaders are supposed to do but often don't um and um you know so i i I hear i feel myself getting on my soapbox but yeah i I feel strongly about this yeah
2: incredibly insightful um yeah i totally get the fact that the companies that actually allow their uh, employees to fully perform to their high stability would be more productive and have you ever with all the companies you've worked with have you ever ran into a company that's um kind of pushed back against your ideas like perhaps a really large company that wants to maintain strict control for some reason
1: well when I was developing this Gianni and I'm dating myself here uh when I was developing this methodology I mean, I didn't call it a collaboration. We didn't know what it was called.
2: And
1: in fact, a senior executive at DuPont uh, in 1990 told me not to use the word, and I asked him why, and he said because that's what they called the, the collaborators in France during World War II. Um, so, it has collaboration has two definitions. One is the one we like is working together, but there's another one called working with the enemy. So there have been collaborators in every single war, including the one that's going on right now, um, working with the enemy, which is betrayal and, you know, which seems, you know, the opposite of trust. Right. Yeah. Um, So the um, I think it's important for us to to keep in mind that. Um, what a leader's primary responsibility is to. I used to work, I remember one executive team that I worked with, he said, wow, we need more results. I said, okay, I got it. So I went to the the whiteboard and I put over in the far right-hand corner the word results, I said, and then I drew an arrow backwards. I said, how are you going to get there? And he said, well, we got to have, you know, Good prices. I said, okay, and how are you going to get that? And after about 15, 20 minutes asking how are you going to do this? How are you going to do that? How are you going to do that? They finally got back to, oh yeah, we gotta, we gotta treat the people right. You don't get results, you don't get profits, you don't get productivity unless you have the people engaged. And so yeah, I've had um push back from the teams I've worked with, because I when I went in, I was helping executives <clears throat> solve problems and we would just solve them collaboratively uh, as opposed to the traditional way of solving it. I do it because I tell you to do it. Um, so I can give you an example of a team where there was pushback from outside the team. Um, but I think it relates to another question that you're going to be asking me around change. Um, but. You, it's, and I rarely, sometimes there was pushback as I took them through the collaborative team governance processes and some of the steps as I facilitated the change process uh, from an individual. But that team, that individual then had responsibility uh, to other members of the team. How were they going to work with each other? Um, and so I put the onus squarely on them. Um, as opposed to, you know, the consultant isn't going to tell them how to how to function. I was facilitating a process where they decided how they were going to work with each other, and it was their choice and their decision. Um, but, yeah, there's always resistance to change, which is something we can talk about.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, in a further section on the book, I read about the actual, like, types of leaders and the characteristics of leaders that make them more uh successful and a significant factor was the like balance between uh emotional intelligence and analytical Mm -hmm. intelligence Mm -hmm. so could you describe a little bit what is emotional intelligence and how it uh relates to the functions of a leader
1: having worked with engineers my entire life and then having taught them for the last six years um, and having come from an engineering family, I'm very familiar with this dynamic. Um, There's a belief among engineers and technical folks that what you have to have in order to succeed in business is only technical or analytical skills. And when they came into my core course, they found out that Mm, that was really not quite true. <laughs> um, you know, uh, a requirement for entry into any position is obviously you have to have the competence and the intellect and the analytical abilities to 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 do the job. But in order to be successful in that job, let alone to grow within the organization, you have to have people skills. Um, and central to that is EI or emotional intelligence. Um, Carnegie did some very important research, I think a number of years ago, where they found the Carnegie Institute of Technology, they found out that um, uh, 85% of all your success as an engineer and as a technical person is gonna be based upon your people skills. 15% is based upon your technical and analytical skills. So it's incumbent upon our younger generation to learn those critical people skills. Well, central to that is emotional intelligence and central to that is your self-awareness as a person. So I would ask my students to And and the executives that I coach, I ask them to put together a journal to explore who they are. What's their mission? What's their vision personally? Um, What do they want their legacy to be in 25 years? Because every single day that you're working, it's a building block towards that legacy. Um, How do you want to be known when you leave any position? Uh, because from day one, when you walk into that job, um, your your brand, your reputation is becoming evident among all your peers and colleagues and direct reports, if you have any. So the job, the work to be done is upon this one. You know, leadership is an inside out journey. It starts in here with what I believe to be important, with what I value, with what is really central to my core, and how I'm going to express that in terms of my relationship to others. Emotional intelligence is in my degree of empathy uh, for other people. Can I walk another mile in their shoes? Um, because if I can't do that, if I can't be empathic, uh, it's gonna be really hard for me to sit in a team meeting instead of driving my own results really listen to another human being and to find out what they want, what they need um, to work through any differences that I have with them Um, and uh, the ability to self regulate. Um, So rather than I mean, we all have hot buttons, I've got mine, you've got yours. What what ticks us off? It sets us off in terms of, you know, um, being in relationship with others. if I get angry, you know, one of mine is, is disrespect. So if I feel disrespected, I, I feel this, this tightness in my chest, right? Well, I have to know that in order to then self-regulate so that I don't go off on somebody. Um, and the, everybody has a different one. You know, for some people's dishonesty, for some people's betrayal, for some people it's, you know, there are any number of things. So it's important from an EI perspective for you to know, you know, what your hot buttons are, mm-hmm. um, to be empathic, to have a high degree of, self, uh, of self-awareness, of self and to be able to regulate your own conduct so that you can work effectively with others. All of that's that's kind of table setting, if you will, and you, you will grow and evolve over time, but you can't be an effective collaborator, team member, or business leader if you don't know how to do that. Yeah, I think
2: uh, one time I heard that the, the fallacy of some people saying they just can't do like STEM and how that's not actually uh, very valid because technically anyone could just learn STEM subjects, such as like engineering, math, mm-hmm. science. Um, and I guess that's where it kind of goes into the 15% of why it's super important in terms of leadership. Mm-hmm. Um like my my brother who now works in data science who uh to attend your classes yes he mainly works uh by himself remotely and does coding and stuff like that I think there's certainly value to be had if one some someone like that would uh collaborate more with their team mm-hmm. and learn be
1: able to learn a lot from the people that you work with yeah not only was gary a fantastic student and human being he was also a fantastic uh, collaborator so his company is losing a lot <laughs> by not engaging him at a different level thank you uh, i'll tell him that later
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh just out of curiosity i'd like to ask like is there any relativity between um collaborative collaborative I can't pronounce that word but sorry really, collaborative leadership and the field of teaching or like how is the field of teaching
1: um well it depends on where you teach yeah. uh, I can tell you that in the School of Engineering at Duke it tends to be top down mm-hmm. um though classes have become more team oriented but my class was the only class on campus that was uh creating uh collaborative teams so I wanted my students to know by the time they got out how to form develop evolve and facilitate a collaborative team and a collaborative team is the the core indicators of that are that they have a set of operating agreements that they've all agreed to, decision-making, accountability, communications, and so on, um, and that they have a charter that they all agreed to, which is their common mission and focus. Uh, other classes would form teams the traditional way. You're the team leader, you decide how you're gonna work uh, without spending any time on it at all uh, or any context for it. So that was one distinction in terms of how 540, my, my approach to 540 was in, in other, in other classes. Um, and, uh, I had, uh, 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 teamwork throughout every single class. Um, you can ask Gary about this. We would have four or five different team breakouts every single time. All of my students were in, I had, I created a, you know, say a global leadership simulation, and they had offline work that they did in teams uh, because, and they had to learn how to do uh, collaborative team meetings because, um, you know, business is done these days in meetings and in teams, and a lot of it's being done virtually. So my job was to equip, um, you know, my students for the the future world to help that transition from academia to uh to the real world to make it a lot smoother and a lot easier and that they would have skill sets that would actually elevate them among their peers i you know so that's one way of looking at it we know from adult learning theory that uh it's kind of called the 70 20 rule that that 10% of what you learn is what you're told, 20% of what you learn is what you read, 70% of what you learn is what you experience. And so following that model, 70% of my work (laughs) was experiential because the millennial and Gen Z generations learn best from each other. so I think it's, you know, when you put that approach together with a collaborative philosophy where I'm the sir I'm of service to my clients, my students, um, and the whole focus is on preparing people for you know a world that is in chaos right now. I think it's the only responsible way to teach them. But you know, that's that's just me. Yeah.
2: Um I think we're running a little bit short on time, but I have a, one last question. It's um, basically regarding your comments about uh, the world is becoming more and more virtual. Do you think it'll be in the uh, foreseeable future? Do you think it'll be easier or increasingly difficult for people to actually collaborate and work together? You mean virtually? Well, that's the thing, Like... In, in terms of um like virtual connections people are technically e- e- like it's easier to talk with people uh, through the internet but also you, know, you can't see face to face um it's harder to get that emotional intelligence through it's kind of a trade-off then.
1: yeah it's kind of kind of hard to really connect with another person when you're in a two-dimensional space um uh, I, I taught online for two years because of COVID and can personally attest to you lose, you do lose something. I loved being in the classroom. I love being in the workplace. Um, and in the global workplace, it's all virtual because, you know, I think one of the things that COVID did was it helped business leaders realize they didn't need to have a high travel budget in order to be able to conduct their business. Um, so <clears throat> there is a you know there is a return to work for many people, but there's still a very large chunk of folks that are working virtually, um, and I suspect that that's going to continue um, because travel budgets aren't going to increase anytime soon, particularly in a recession. Um, but uh, the key to success in working together virtually in combination with being in person is having a, a shared culture. Where we're all in this together. And the mistake that many companies make is they don't create those collaborative cultures where that happens. So um, I hope that helps. <laughs> I certainly hope
2: you know, one day, uh, for example, I can get to do this podcast in person and meet with people, uh, not just through Zoom, but like face to face. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, That's all the questions I've prepared for this time, and also Zoom, timer is going to run out soon. So thank you so much again for participating
1: and having this conversation today. It's a a pleasure to have been invited, and thank you uh, to all of you who are listening. So I appreciate it. If you want to get in touch with me, I'm at edward.marshall at duke.edu.
0: Thank you so much for listening. And special thanks again to Dr. Marshall for sitting down for this episode. If you have any feedback or questions regarding this podcast, please contact the theframingeffectpc at gmail.com. Please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Podcasts, and Instagram. And be sure to tune in next time. Thank you so much.